Welcome to the North Carolina Court of Appeals. I'm Judge Valerie Zachary. To my right is Judge Toby Hampson. To my left is Judge Jefferson Griffin. Assisting us today are uh, Deputy Clerk Roderick McFarland and Officer Richard Remillard. On the calendar this afternoon, we have Apollo MedFlight LLC versus Laquita Nelson et al on appeal from New Hanover County. All right, is counsel ready to begin? Your Honor, Nelson Harris for the plaintiff. I am ready to begin. Okay, thank you. Have you already worked out is, how much time you're going to save for rebuttal? And uh, I uh, asked for five minutes. Okay, great. Proceed, please. Uh, please proceed. Uh, thank you uh, very much. If it may please the court, uh, North Carolina General Statutes 44A, 49A, 44-49A creates a lien upon any sums recovered as damages for personal injury in a civil action in this state. Uh, it provides for perfection of the medical lien by written notice uh, with the validity of the lien conditional upon provision to counsel for the injured party free of charge with copies of the injured party's medical records. And it provides that there should be a retention of the funds uh, by whoever has them to uh, apply to satisfy the lien. Uh, specifically, uh, 4450 provides that before their disbursement, any person that receives those funds shall retain out of any recovery or any compensation so received a sufficient amount to pay the just and So your, your, your colleagues would say there's a, a distinction in our statutes between a personal injury action and a wrongful death action. Um, how, do you, how do you address that distinction here in this case? Well, I, I, I think you, you just have to look at the plain language of 44A, uh, uh, 44-49A. It says it creates a lien upon any sums recovered as damages for personal injury. It doesn't say that, it doesn't exclude the possibility that that lien, you know, applies with respect to wrongful death actions. Uh, I mean, uh, that, that's what I would say with respect to that, Your Honor. Well, I mean, excuse me, please. And, and I would point out that, you know, there's going to be times when uh, personal injury liens under uh, 44A, uh, I keep saying 44A, under 44-49A, um, you know, uh, you can have a lien placed upon, uh, you know, personal injury recoveries, potential personal injury recoveries, and then the uh, party who is making that claim dies. I mean, there's going to be, uh, I would call that a rare but not unusual circumstance. So I think that, you know, to the extent that these things can be construed so that they're consistent with each other, they should be. Uh, and there's nothing in the wrongful death statute that says that no medical, that you can't put a medical lien on those recoveries. I would agree that it has to be on that portion that is recovered as damages for personal injury. But a wrongful death recovery can include all kinds of things, not just, you know, um, not just payment for uh, medical expenses and this kind of stuff, but obviously that's something that you can recover. Uh, 
under the wrongful death statute. So, I mean, there, there's, I, I would say that 44-49A, if you just treat it sort of as a subset of, you know, the kinds of things that you can make wrongful death claims before, you can construe it in such a way that it's not inconsistent. Um, I mean, and, and it, that's the simple thing that the, um, this court is going to have to uh, look at, but I would remind the court when it's making its decision that, well, you know, you, I certainly in the past have placed medical liens on recoveries that have then become something that uh, I guess is collected through a wrongful death uh, action. Is that what happened in this case? Uh, that is not what happened in this case, Your Honor. Uh, I believe the decedent in this case died uh, relatively quickly and before we had filed. So uh, our claim was against the estate. Is there any dispute that Ms. Williams died from a, a injury suffered in this accident? Uh, no, Your Honor. Okay. No, Your Honor. Um, Well, does a trial court have to accept as true everything that's in the that, that's alleged in the complaint? I believe that they're supposed to, Your Honor, that they are supposed to accept everything at, at, in the complaint as true and give uh, my client all reasonable inferences that can be drawn from it. And so, like, like, you're in the complaint, it's characterized as a personal injury claim rather than a wrongful death claim. So are we limited to construing it as a personal injury claim? Um, no, I, I, I would have to concede that you're not limited to considering it as a personal injury claim, Your Honor. I mean, we're, we made the claim against the, the estate, and uh, I would not assert that it was not a claim that uh, ultimately was paid you know, to the estate uh, in compensation for uh, the damages that were suffered by the decedent in the accident. Um, from from which, which, which ultimately caused her death? Is it, yes, Your Honor. I, I mean, as opposed to, I mean, you could, have, you could have a case in which someone's injured in a car accident and then a couple days later they, they pass away from something else. Yes, I, I, I. And that's what I'm trying to distinguish. I don't believe we would assert that's the case here, Your Honor. Okay. okay. Um, no, no, I, I, I don't think so, Your Honor. But we would, you know, going back, we would respectfully assert that you can have a claim for, because if you look at 44A, 4449A, it just says it creates a lien upon any sums recovered as damages for personal injury in any civil action in this state. And, you know, if, we, we do look, there, there, there appears to have been a liability payment, although it's not clear, you know, whose coverage paid it, and there appears to be a wrongful death, uh, I mean, a uh, uh, med pay recovery. And um, we would respectfully assert that both, you know, any kind of personal injury recovery would be uh, recovery as damages for personal injury. You know, so if they're paying her for medical expenses that were incurred in connection with the accident, it, 
you know, we can lien anything that's recovered. That would be a damages uh, for personal injury. Um, I'm not so uh, sure what to do about the med pay, Your Honor. I would say that it is uh, recovery uh, as damages for personal injury because they're paying, you know, um, uh, they're paying uh, out of a uh, policy and perhaps even, you know, not the tortfeasor's policy, um, you know as damages for the personal injury, but uh, we would say that that's outside the wrongful death uh, recovery. Okay. Well, I mean, I guess the question that I have then is if, are you saying that it's irrelevant whether it's a wrongful death action or a personal injury claim? As, as far yes. as the lien if, goes? If it, is a uh, payment for damages for personal injury. It's irrelevant, what, we would contend that it's irrelevant whether it is uh, a wrongful death action or not. But then the wrongful death statute only allows um, payment of $4,500, am I correct for, uh, for- Yes, Your Honor. Uh, your medical bills and everything? I, I agree with that, Your Honor. So how but, do you reconcile that with with the uh, with the lien statute, which which would I guess would allow up to what a third? Well, the wrongful death. If you look at forty four hyphen forty nine a, it says that we can recover, uh, we can have a lien up to fifty percent of the recovery. Uh, the wrongful death statute says forty five hundred dollars or fifty percent of the recovery, whichever is uh, lesser. So uh, you're just putting an additional boundary to the set of recovery if it becomes a wrongful death statute, and uh, if, it, if it's covered by the wrongful death statute. So we would, we would contend that we could collect, you know, $4,500 if, if they died and it becomes a wrongful death recovery, and uh, we would uh, contend that we were entitled to uh, $4,500 or 50%, whichever is the lesser. So we would have a lien on the $4,500. If, if um, the money was received uh, from the person or corporation who would uh, be liable. And, and again, I want to go back to, uh, we're talking about this as if, this is recovery in tort. But there were two payments in this case, Your Honor. One, there was one that appears to have been a liability payment. And we would certainly uh, agree that 2818-2 would apply. But if it's just a med pay out of the uh, vehicle's owner's own pocket, it's not from the personal corporation that would have been so liable. And uh, there's no particular reason. Let, let, let's say that, you know, there's uh, uh, $50,000 in med pay, as, you know, appears to have been the case uh, here. And uh, my client's claim was uh, 48 out of that, and there was another five or $6,000 in medical expenses that uh, were paid out of the med pay. Um, it's not from the person or corporation so liable, but uh, it is something that is being paid as damages uh, for personal injury, or at least we would contend it was. Um, so uh, we would respectfully assert that med pay uh, is not a wrongful death uh, 
it's not a wrongful death recovery because it's not something that is paid by the person or corporation who would have been so liable. Or at least, it's, yes, it's, it's not covered by 2818-2. I mean, perhaps I've oversimplified this, Your Honor, but my, our, our, our position is that, you know, we can lean anything that is uh, a sum recovered as damages for personal injury in any civil action, that uh, to the extent that the wrongful death uh, statute applies, it only replies with respect to uh, money that has reco been recovered from the person or corporation that would have been so liable. But we would concede that if it is money that is recovered for the person or or, uh, from the person or corporation so liable that there'd be a $4,500 or 50% cap, uh, but that if it is not money from the person or corporation that would have been so liable and was still uh, recovered as damages, which arguably MedPay would be, that, um, you know, there's no $4,500 cap and we could get whatever our prorated portion of the MedPay payment is. See, but you've got a $50,000 judgment against the estate. Sure. In this case. So how does that, how does that relate or impact to, to the claims as against the, uh, the law firm? Well, we've got a judgment. We've don't have the money. I mean, the whole purpose of having a medical lien statute, Your Honor, is so we don't have to chase the money. Uh, that, that, you know, people, such, uh, entities such as the insurance companies or attorneys who come into the possession of the money are obligated to pay us so that we don't have to go to, you know, wherever it is and try to recover the money. I mean, and, you know, that's what's happened here, Your Honor. This money went, it went to Georgia and it's disappeared. And uh, there's no good way for the, you know, plaintiffs to go down to Georgia and do more than get the judgment that they already have and try to collect from the executor. Um, I mean, I, I, I think that's, the answer here is the whole reason that they have, the answer to your question is the whole reason they have the medical lien statute is so, you know, the medical providers won't have to chase the money. They can sit there and they can wait and after they uh, get the lien filed and that is certainly something that, uh, you know, the General Assembly was contemplating. They, they wanted to make it so that medical providers would wait. They wanted to make it so that uh, medical providers did not have to start immediately chasing. Um, so I, I think that's the answer to your question. They, they, the medical lien statute, the whole design and purpose of it is so we won't have to chase. I mean, I got a $50,000 judgment, but it's really nothing. Okay. And heck, that might even be true if these people didn't live in Georgia, which of course they do. Well, how do you reconcile the fact that first party settlement proceeds for wrongful death are not distributed in accordance with the Intestate Succession Act? Why aren't they exempt? Well, why aren't they, why aren't they accepted from that? Under your reasoning, why would why would you just why would you distribute first party settlement proceeds in accordance with the Intestate Succession Act? Well, I mean, at least to the extent of the forty five hundred dollars, you know, they wouldn't be uh, distributed under the Intestate Succession Act. Uh, I wouldn't think. Um, well, right now, the, the state of the law right now is that they're, 
that they are they're not accepted. Okay, first settlement party proceeds, first party settlement proceeds are not accepted. Okay, under your reasoning, they should be. So I'm wondering how you reconcile that with your with your argument. Uh, the first party settlement uh, proceeds, if there's a lien on them, like I mean, you're talking about, like you're talking about, like uh, underinsured motorist coverage or something. Yes. Um, I don't have a good answer to that question, Your Honor. That's right. Uh, you know, the, um, I just go and uh, look at, okay, well, you know, if, if, if you've got MedPay coverage, they submit bills to pay MedPay, uh, and um, I would respectfully assert that they should be uh, uh, distributed pro rata among the uh, MedPay, uh, the, uh, among the billants or among the claimants that resulted in the MedPay funds being paid. But you, weren't you talking about, weren't you claiming more than just the MedPay? Wasn't there an, uh, an uninsured or an underinsured motorist coverage? Right, Your Honor, we don't. As well? Yes, Your Honor. I mean, and if it's the tortfeasor that did it, we would suggest that we have a uh, claim to $4,500 uh, as it appears to be provided for under the wrongful death statute. And if it's MedPay, then, um, it's just a whole different uh, uh, kettle of fish. Uh, we would assert. I, I thought there were. Two, I thought there were two. I thought there was MedPay, and then an underinsured or underinsured um, motorist. Um. Well, we don't. We don't know. We don't know where the there, there's two. There's two payments. One's right. a med payment for fifty. Right. And then the other. It could have come from the tortfeasor's insurance company. I mean. That's an is it, It's not another med pay. Is it? No, it's not another MedPay. All right, so it's an uninsured or an underinsured motorist coverage claim, right? Well, uh, or you the, don't know. We don't know. Okay. It could either the, it's it's a USAA policy, but it could either be from the tortfeasor or it could have been from the underinsured uh, UIM coverage of the driver. Uh, we don't know. Okay. Um, well, thank you for making that clear. So, it, you know, I, well, right. I guess you would contend that that's a pretty key material issue of fact that it should be well, decided down the road. Yeah. What? Not at, not at a 12B6. Would, right. Yes, we would, we would uh, argue that. I mean, we don't know what it is. I mean, if, if the court determines that you just simply can't have a claim uh, if there's, you know, there's if the court determines that you can't have a lien claim that applies in uh, in connection with a wrongful uh, with someone who's decided, then that's just the answer to all of it. Um, if the court determines that you can have a lien and that lien is enforceable in connection with a wrongful uh, in connection with an, uh, a claim against the estate. And you know, just because someone dies doesn't mean any liens that you might have beforehand or, or uh, don't still exist, or you can't put a lien against them. I, when I put this, well, let's say someone let's say someone has a deck built on their house, and the 120 days hasn't run, and then they die. I mean, you can still have a lien that's enforceable 
in the against the estate okay and that's you know I, I suppose what we're arguing here that you know that the language of 44-49A leaves open the possibility that you can file a lien uh, against uh, recoveries for personal injury, and that's what we did. And, um, you know, uh, with respect to the wrongful death, uh, with respect to uh, uh, if it's a wrongful death recovery, we would s strike that. If it was a recovery from the tortfeasor, we would certainly concede that we would be capped at the $4,500 or 50% of the recovery, whichever is the lesser. Um, and, and again, with respect to the last, our last claim, I would simply say uh, with respect to unfair trade practices, uh, if there is a lien, what they've done is something that Nash Hospital uh, suggests is, uh, some, is an unfair trade practice. I mean, uh, well, my question is, do we even get that far? If you look at the allegations of the complaint, there's no allegation that it was a wrongful death claim. It just says personal injury. If we take all the allegations of your complaint as true, are we, are we kind of, um, you know, we, we don't know that it's a wrongful death claim. We don't know, I mean, it says the state, but we don't know why she passed away. Uh, and so um, shouldn't this court at that point proceed as if it were a personal injury claim? I, I really don't know what she died of. So I, 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 I certainly, you know, understand and accept that argument, Your Honor. Uh, I, she may have gone in and been perfectly healthy and stroked out or have uh, died of something that was unrelated to the accident. Um, I've certainly seen that before, mm -hmm. where clients of mine have gone in and had an aortic dissection, you know, two weeks later and uh, unrelated to uh, the injury. Uh, I wish I could say whether I knew that that's what she died of or not, but uh, it's true that I don't know. Um, but don't you make the argument that we're, that in your brief, that we're, uh... You're, you're definitely putting the cart before the horse, Sean, because we don't know. I agree with that. Okay. Um, and, and, well, if, the, if there's no lien, Your Honor, there's no... Uh, unfair trade practice claim. If there is a lien, we would respectfully argue that there is. I, I think, you know, this is not, sending a check down to Georgia Council is not rendering a professional service. Uh, paying uh, money on which there's a lien is not rendering a professional service. Uh, if it's something that State Farm uh, can do and not be licensed to practice law, then you doing it should not be rendering a pro professional services that would get you out of uh, the unfair trade practice claim. You know, that's, that's my argument. I've tried to keep it simple. Uh, I will state just um, in terms of the motion to dismiss, Your Honor, I, I did want to, uh, uh, to sort of summarize our, the arguments that are in the brief. Uh, Your Honor, uh, we've made a, uh, uh, there was a certificate of service attached. 
that raises a pre uh, presumption of uh, timely service on their counsel. Uh, they presented evidence to rebut the uh, presumption, which is that we didn't receive it. Um, there was a little bit of hearsay in there about what Brian Cromkey said, but you know, Brian uh, obviously received the notice of appeal by email and probably received it by first class mail, Your Honor. I don't think that there's any, you know, I don't think it's unusual at all to throw away second copies when you receive them by mail if you've already received them by email. Uh, it doesn't seem to be enough to rebut the presumption of fact, uh, valid service. I would think, hope that the court would take this opportunity to say that the, the proper place to make determinations of that type is at the trial court level. I mean, if Brian, uh, if, if, if this court's not really well positioned to make findings of fact uh, on paper, I probably would have brought in Brian if we had had the hearing down there and gotten him to admit that he received. Yes, he did receive the email and he often throws the second copies away. I suspect that he would have testified to that. Um, that's not the kind of thing that should be considered here. So when the Court of Appeals is passing on whether or not there should be, uh, passing on the, uh, whether or not there should be a dismissal, you know, uh, I would hope that they would, you know, make it clear going forward uh, to the bar that, you know, the right place to make those kind of, right kind of place to make those arguments is at the trial court level where they can make findings of fact that then the court could decide whether there was enough evidence to support them. Um, and that presumes that, um, you know, presuming that there was a, um, there wasn't good service. Well, we did get good service on Brian. Uh, that makes this a non-jurisdictional question. Uh, you know, they uh, got our uh, contract with the tra for transcription like the day after the notice of appeal was filed. There's nothing really that um, uh, would have uh, affected your ability to uh, consider this case. And, um, you know, if there's a sanction to be imposed, uh, well, we respectfully assert that there, it's well short of, uh, well short of what would be appropriate um, uh, to dismiss. And in fact, under those circumstances, there really shouldn't be any sanction at all. Was there any prejudice to defendant? Uh, there should not have been, Your Honor. I mean, they, they, what prejudice would there have been? They had a, um, they knew within a day that, you know, we must have filed a notice of appeal. Uh, you know, we served our record on appeal with a full transcript, so they don't have the argument that, you know, perhaps we would have ordered a full transcript. There's, there's simply no appeal. I, but I do think that um, it might be appropriate for to say, hey, this is something that should be considered at the trial court level, and then it can come up to us. I mean, I don't have Brian here sworn in to testify, and that, you know, I could have done that at the trial court level. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you.
May it please the court, I'm Melody Jolly on behalf of uh, the defendant, Apoli Allen Wellens and his sole proprietorship law firm. Um, I wanted to just briefly touch on the motion to dismiss thing. Since Your Honor asked about the prejudice, perhaps there was no prejudice because I did check the court file. Um, I did not find out within a day, uh, but I did check the court file roughly a month after the time for filing a notice of appeal and serving it had passed. And that was when I found that there was a notice of appeal in the court file. So I just wanted to clarify that. And I do believe that that's set forth in our motion to dismiss the appeal and in the affidavit that I submitted in support of the same. Um, but more to the heart of the matter, uh, we'll get to responding to Apollo's arguments with regard to the applicability of uh, the, what I would if it pleases the court, call collectively the medical lien statutes contained at Chapter 45, Article 9. Um, so if I could refer to those collectively as the medical lien statutes, uh, and then the interplay or lack thereof with the uh, our state's wrongful death act. Um, I think it's important to take a step back and look at how the Wrongful Death Act characterizes proceeds versus how the medical lien statutes characterize proceeds. Before you start, um, can you please tell me, was there a wrongful death claim filed here? Do you mean was there a claim filed in a court in the state of North Carolina? Yeah. No, Your Honor. There was not a wrongful death action commenced. Did, did Ms. Williams passed away from injuries sustained in the accident. Yes, she did, and I don't believe there's a dispute about that. Okay. Thank you. Um, so with regard to the way that the, the differing statutes um, distinct or delineate proceeds, I think it's important to point out that the Wrongful Death Act actually specifies that proceeds are not assets. Um, whereas we have, on the other hand, the medical lien statutes are presumably assets because they are allowed, the General Assembly saw fit to allow creditors, creditors being medical providers, to place liens on those asset recoveries. Um, what the are, general- Are we constrained here? And I think this may have been sort of what Judge Zachary has, has been, been trying to, to, to get to in, in her questioning. Are, are we not constrained here by the fact that this was decided at 12 v. 6, and we're limited in that review, and the trial court was limited in that review, to the, to the well-pled factual allegations in the complaint, and, and, and the documents either attached or incorporated there too. And in the complaint itself, there is no mention of the pursuit of a, of a wrongful death claim, whether in action or just simply trying to, to, to resolve it through negotiation. Um, there, there's, there's no allegation of a, wrong, of a settlement from wrongful death. It kind of, frankly, the allegations of the complaint kind of skip from, you know, here we, we, you know, we provided this, this service and now we're, in, you know, now we're entitled to, to assert lean there's sort of like there's a whole sort of factual gap in the allegations in the complaint and so you know just from a sheer sort of appellate review standpoint what do we point to under 12 v6 to say this is this was a wrongful death case 
I mean, where, where's that in the record? Certainly, and I think um, that's a great question, and I have spent some Thank time you. trying to process the allegations of the complaint and read those in concert with the exhibits that were attached to and incorporated in the complaint. Um, and the complaint does allege that on April 14th of 2019, Ms. Williams was involved in a, in a motor vehicle accident and that she suffered a medical emergency. Um, that that same day, that medical emergency necessitated her life flight by Apollo to New Hanover Regional Medical Center. Um, it further alleges that Mr. Wellens, Attorney Wellens, was retained to represent the estate in pursuit of, and the complaint does call them personal injury claims, but I don't think that's dispositive, and I'll tell you why. Um, but it does allege that this, they were, my client was retained to represent the state in pursuit of personal injury claims, and that my client assisted with procuring a settlement in connection with the accident. Um, it then goes on to allege that Apollo served counsel for the per, uh, personal representative of the estate, my client, with notice of its purported lien interest pursuant to uh, uh, NCGS 44-49. Um, so when reading the complaint as a whole, recognizing that Ms. Williams' demise was from the motor vehicle accident, reading the exhibits to the complaint, which reflect that she was a Jane Doe. Um, I can't remember specifically what it says right now. I think it says Doe Bubbles, because that's a term that they use when, so that we don't have thousands of Jane Does at New Hanover Regional Medical Center. Um, and so reading it as a whole and seeing that her demise was from the injuries she, she sustained in the accident and that the settlement was procured as damages for the accident, then I believe that taking those things as a whole collectively, even at 12B6, the court is able to discern that it is a wrongful death recovery and not one for personal injury. Um, I think that that's further bolstered by the fact that it's the nature of the action, not the source of the funds, not what we call it, um, not what I call it, not what Mr. Harris calls it, not what anybody calls it, but the nature of the action de determines uh, whether it falls in the purview of the Wrongful Death Act or whether there's entitlement for Apollo or another medical provider to place a lien on the proceeds. Um, it's analogous, I believe, to the situation where if, let's just take it a step further with this same family, right? So instead of Ms. Williams' um, estate being able to settle the wrongful death claim, let's say that they're unable to do so, and so they're uh, forced to file a civil action to recover for the damages sustained in the motor vehicle accident. If that civil action is not filed within the two-year statute of limitations applicable to the Wrongful Death Act, but it fits into the wrongful death box because she did meet her demise as a result of the injuries sustained in that accident, then it's going to be barred by the applicable statute of limitations. And if it's pled as personal injury, that doesn't salvage it and entitle uh, Ms. Williams, personal representative of her estate, to then take the benefit of the longer three-year statute of limitations that would be applicable to a personal injury recovery. 
Um, so I think it's less about what it's called in the complaint and more about reading the totality of the allegations and the supporting exhibits that are incorporated by reference into the complaint. Does that answer your question? Well, I'm still, I'm, <laughs> probably the kind of question only, you know, an, an, an appellate guy can, um, or, gal. Or, or gal for that matter, <laughs> yes, judge, um, you know, uh, gets bogged down in, but I'm, I'm, I'm sort of wondering if, it, if 12 v. 6 just wasn't kind of premature in the sense that, you know, was this not more appropriate for a motion for judgment on the pleadings or, or summary judgment down the line? Because I, 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 I appreciate uh, your argument and your, and your points, but you're, you're, you seem to be drawing every inference in favor of the defendant for purpose of your argument, which is not the way, right, we view the allegations of 12 v. 6. And I'm still, I'm still struggling with drawing that connection just on limited by, our, by the standard review and the procedural posture from the complaint to this, to this being a wrongful death action. I, I'm, I'm, I'm having trouble making that, making that leap. I, I appreciate that that's, you know, outside of the, the appellate world and, and, and the record of it, that that's, that may in fact be the case. But, but from the standpoint of the way these cases process. I'm, I'm just having a hard time making that leap. And that was something, you know, candidly, Your Honor, that I struggled with going into the 12B6 motion, but then upon, you know, taking the time to review those exhibits and seeing that she was um, deceased from this motor vehicle accident and seeing that the allegations and then the letter from Attorney Wellens with regard to procuring the settlement and sending the monies to the attorney in Georgia, um, reading it all as a whole and being able to discern that within the confines of the complaint, while it might be termed personal injury by the pleader, uh, it doesn't change the fact that the injuries that were compensated, the damages were comp that were compensated were damages that arose from the motor vehicle accident that caused her death, which puts it squarely in the box of a wrongful death recovery and not a personal injury recovery. Do you, excuse me, no, no. but it doesn't say that anywhere, does it? I'm sorry. It doesn't say that, that she died as a result of injuries suffered in the accident, does it? I don't know if it says that explicitly. Um, she died, you know, on either, I believe it's en route to, or upon, she was, I guess, dead on arrival at the hospital. So I do understand your question. Is it possible that she had a heart attack on the way to the hospital? Um, I, 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 and I don't know, I don't know how to address that question, but I did hear Mr. Harris, you know, concede that we're all in agreement that you know, at least initially that she did, uh, you know, she did die this day. She did die following the accident. The recovery was a recovery made from the, you know, various insurers for the motor vehicle accident. And it was a recovery made from the tortfeasor. So I think you just, I struggle to surmise how if she died from a heart attack on the way to the hospital, how there would be that recovery for the accident, uh, if that if that makes sense. Well, if she died, if she died of something else, I mean, wouldn't wouldn't um, you know she'd still owe the fifty thousand dollars to Apollo Med Flight, and you know that would be something that she could then or her or her estate could then uh, uh, recover. Am I? 
I guess that gets a little bit beyond the scope of, of what I've done for my client, but I would uh, present to the court that there are allegations in the complaint that the decedent or her personal representative signed off on this contract for services, which is what bound them to owe this money to Apollo. Um, however, that uh, the exhibit that's attached to the complaint is inconsistent with the allegations because the exhibit does reflect that she was unconscious, that she was unresponsive, that she was unable to sign that authorization. Um, and it further shows that no personal representative or authorized representative signed on her behalf. Um, so I don't know if that is or is not material to the argument before the court today. But since it came up, um, you know, I think there is a question whether on the face of the complaint even the estate would have an obligation uh, pursuant to that contract. I do have copies of it that are more legible than the one attached in the record. If um, your honors would like copies of those, I'm happy to provide them. Again, I don't know that it's uh, particularly significant to the argument as it relates to my client. Um, I do think that even if we assume for a moment that this is a personal injury recovery or assume that we have to accept that uh, or that the court determines that based on the court's review of the allegations and the attachments to the complaint that for purposes of, of purposes of appellate review that you know maybe 12b6 doesn't allow you to conclude that it was a wrongful death recovery. Um, and, and certainly, I, I think it does. I think there's room there for that conclusion. And I think that the trial court rightly reached that conclusion. But even assuming, just for purposes of the argument, that the recovery is one for personal injury, um, the proceeds were sent to another attorney, and Apollo was copied on that communication. So. The proceeds weren't distributed by my client um, in violation of the lien statute. Copy of the lien, and this is clearly in the complaint, it's clear in the attachments. Copy of Apollo's lien notice is included with the correspondence to the attorney in Georgia. Um, and no proceeds were distributed other than to the attorney who was representing the personal representative of the estate in Georgia. Um, so. You do. With that, I suppose uh, perhaps there's a there's a claim to be had against that attorney, uh, but I don't believe that the law supports that sending proceeds to another attorney um, who's a fiduciary would violate the lien statute um, or even the spirit of the lien statute. So, assuming that the court is able to accept the uh, or to read the complaint as a whole, to uh, read this to be a wrongful death settlement. Because again, I think if we were here on a statute of limitations issue, uh, that it would be barred if it weren't filed within the first two years. Um, so under that analysis, you know, there's been a lot of discussion as far as first party insurance proceeds, um, as far as the silence of the wrongful death act as to whether or not there can be a lien on that recovery. And I would present to your honors that the Wrongful Death Act actually is, is not silent. Um, it specifies very specifically recovery, not proceeds. Um, the General Assembly 
uh, clearly had intent to protect assets for next of kin uh, in order to presumably make those next of kin as whole as possible when losing their loved ones. Um, whereas with regard to the medical lien statutes, the General Assembly saw fit to try to protect the interests of those providers who were rendering services to injured persons. Um, and I think that that distinction between the two is very well drawn when looking at the language of the statute. The Wrongful Death Act refers to if the injured person had lived. And so if the injured person had lived, if Janice Williams had lived, then there could have been a personal injury action filed. And if the injured person had lived, if Janice Williams had lived, then Apollo would have the ability to lean the recovery that she obtained so that Apollo could be made relatively whole. Um, and I think that with regard to the legislative purpose and policy behind that, we have providers who are rendering services to injured persons and those injured persons might not initially be able to pay those providers. And then those injured persons go on to pursue, whether via settlement or via actually filing an action, they go on to pursue recovery for the damages they sustain for that personal injury. And within the calculation of those damages is gonna be that provider's medical bill. And so I think rightly the General Assembly saw fit to, to protect that provider's interest by saying, injured person, if you do recover, you need to give some compensation to those providers who presumably helped you know, save you or helped you recover. Whereas with wrongful, wrongful Death Act, the statute says if the injured person had lived and then gives exceptions. Um, as far as Apollo's position that it should be able to lean a wrongful death recovery because the statutes don't say otherwise, I would say that recovery not assets suggests otherwise. Um, also, the Wrongful Death Act does contemplate liens. The General Assembly wasn't, it, it, it doesn't appear that they weren't thinking about liens because they did create an exception for those liens of the state employee's health plan. Um, and so that is accepted from the $4,500 cap. Um, another thing that the General Assembly did not accept that Your Honor pointed out earlier was first party insurance proceeds. There's no exception that says that those are somehow different. And I think that the policy behind under an uninsured motorist coverage is that the, and the case law shows, and this is in our brief, um, that you know, the, the first party insurer is standing in the shoes of the tortfeasor. It is called underinsured motorist an uninsured motorist coverage, meaning the tortfeasor who was under or uninsured. Uh, so I would present to the court that that would still be a recovery from, in theory, from the tortfeasor. Um, and so would not be subject to any exception, would not fall somehow back into the purview of personal injury just because it came from the first party insurance carrier. And you know, further to the point of the legislative policy behind the Wrongful Death Act, if the intent is to protect the next of kin of the injured parties and to see fit to try to reserve those assets for the family, um, one would think that it only follows logically that the first party insurance coverage that's in place would also be to the benefit of 
those next of kin as opposed to the benefit of creditors. Um, with regard to the unfair trade practices claim, uh, this is one I feel is very clear cut. Um, I believe Apollo has argued that somehow because there was not an attorney-client relationship between Apollo and my client, uh, that that takes it out of the purview of the learned professional exemption to the statute. Um, also, that the fact that an insurance company can also violate the lien statute takes it out of the learned professional exemption. And I think I can very succinctly and clearly uh, show the court how it fits into the learned professional exemption. And that's by looking back at the medical lien statutes themselves. They contemplate payment of attorney's fees for legal services rendered in connection with obtaining a personal injury settlement. So I think clearly and squarely the services rendered by Attorney Wellens, even assuming it was for obtaining a personal injury settlement, not wrongful death, um, that they nevertheless fall squarely within the learned professional exemption to the unfair and deceptive trade practices statute. Uh, and so that claim would be proper for dismissal, irrespective of whether the court construes the allegations as for wrongful death or for personal injury recovery. Thank you very much. Thank you. Please, the court. Uh, just briefly, um, I'd like to uh, comment. Um, giving the money to Georgia Council is a distribution. I mean, uh, we had a medical lien. It was served on Mr. Wellens. Uh, they uh, let the money get out of uh, the corporation's hand, and now it's with someone we don't have a lien against and, in, and who's in another state. Uh, so any distribution to anyone if there's a, a valid medical lien is, you know, going to be contrary to the statute. And I, I just simply can't accept that giving it to Georgia Council, who has some fiduciary duty and this kind of stuff, well, he got the money and he gave it to his clients and it's all gone and we didn't have a lien on it. Uh, that is a distribution. In terms of the, um, you know, the purpose of the wrongful uh, death statute and the fact that they're trying to, you know, keep some assets uh, uh, to protect the family. Well, you know, I, I want to remind the court that there, there are two payments in this case. One of them was either a, um, you know, a, a liability payment from the tortfeasor or a payment uh, from the uh, UI or UIM coverage, okay? Uh, we don't know which it is, but one of those payments was one of those two things. And perhaps uh, with respect to those, those are things that, um, you know, should properly be going to the, uh, are subject to the limitations because the General, General Assembly uh, attempts to, or is attempting to, you know, provide for the families of the decedent. That doesn't apply with respect to MedPay, and to the extent it's relevant, um, well, let's let's look at it this way. You know, 
if there'd been no medical expenses, there would have been no money going to the uh, estate. That $50,000 that was paid was $50,000 that was paid because there were medical expenses that the money was supposed to pay. Um, and and, and uh, whether that matters, you know, this is money that if my client hadn't, if my client hadn't had a claim for 50 some odd thousand dollars, you know, the med pay payment would have probably been four. Um, so, you know, they took money that was gone, going to pay my clients because my clients had a claim and, you know, it's all gone now. Um, With regard to med pay, are you entitled to recover that if you're in a single car accident? Are you entitled to recover it if it's a single car accident? Right. There's no tort feeser. If you you well if you if, you you, you hit a tree, are you uncovered? Are you entitled to recover um, from your med pay? If you're not contributorily negligent, yes. I mean, if if if. Uh, you don't see, um, um, well, if, if they're doing road construction or, you know, I, I remember on Newton Road a couple of years ago, there was a, it, uh, uh, the pipe under the road collapsed and, you know, you couldn't see it until you were right up on it. If you ran into that and you weren't negligent, you would get med pay out of your own pol uh, policy. So, uh, yes. Um, but I just wanted to say those two things. Uh, I didn't have anything else really to add. But I, I do, distributing the money to Georgia Council is not, but that is distribution. Thank you very much. That concludes oral argument in this matter. Uh, we'll take it under advisement. I want to thank Council for their excellent arguments this afternoon. Uh, we may adjourn.